Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles up to 1 John chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 21. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. Um, I have to confess a few things to you before we move into this particular passage. This passage is going to discuss a a type of theology, at least in part, that's called eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things. And as your pastor, I'm supposed to know and love theology, but I need to confess to you that eschatology is my least favorite of the theologies. Uh, for two reasons. One may be a little bit more than important than the other. The first one is eschatology has become such a source of division in the church. The book of Revelation, which discusses eschatology in length, has become a source of contention amongst Christians, when in fact, for Christians, it's supposed to be a book of hope and a book of unity and a book of looking forward to what the Lord has in store. The second reason that I Uh, don't enjoy eschatology is because I think I have a type of PTSD from when I was a child. Uh, There were these movies called Thief in the Night movies. Uh, If you were a conservative Baptist in the 80s and 90s, you might be familiar with these. Uh, There are movies about what happens during the end times, and one of the things that consistently happens is believers are put in a guillotine and their heads are chopped off. We watch those movies on New Year's Eve as a church. So as a 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old, not really a child anymore, I spent New Year's Eve under the pews of our church crying and afraid of guillotines. So if I don't love eschatology in the way that you do, you'll have to forgive me. Uh, I'm not afraid to talk about it, but it is not my favorite of the ologies. Here's the other reason. This is the third reason that I um, struggle with eschatology. There are far too many people that have gotten excited about the details of the end times and not the God of the end times. Eschatology is meant to encourage us to worship God in a greater manner than before. Because eschatology reveals to us that as uncertain as things seem, the God that we worship has all of those details under control to bring them about in the way in which he is glorified and his perfect plan is manifested. I knew today that I could even just come in and for some of you, if I just went, hey, you guys want to hear some cool stuff about Antichrist? And the vast majority of people would go, yes. When in fact, what we should be even more concerned about is hearing about the Christ of our salvation. So you you can forgive me again if I'm not as excited about eschatology as you might be. But here's what I do understand about eschatology. Here's what I appreciate about eschatology. The Bible is not silent on last things. 
The Bible does speak about eschatology. The Bible does speak about how this whole thing ends. And if you don't get anything else from this particular series, remember, we win. That no matter how uncertain things seem, in the end, Jesus Christ brings about all the details to its culmination. So here, here, before we read the passage, here's the thesis for this particular passage. The end times are upon us. The last hour is at hand. And if we're not careful, we can be encouraged to lose hope and to cower from the lies of Antichrist. But... We must not lose hope as we stand firm with the people of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. So with this in mind, I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able, for a reading from the Word of God, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18, going through 21 this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge." I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. What we see right away in this particular passage is that Antichrist, or types of Antichrist, is evidence of the end. What we see is John speaking very tenderly again to those that he's writing to in this, his first epistle. He calls them children. It's a term of affection. It's the same as verse 1, my little children. But what he says here is that the last hour is here. This, this word last hour is where we actually get the word eschatology, which eschatology just means study of last things. We see three different words that, that make up this term of eschatology from different passages, one from the Old Testament and two from the New Testament. Uh, eschatology is either last days, last time, or last hour in the Scriptures. Last days in Isaiah chapter 2, 2, and Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Isaiah 2, 2 says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Last or later days, last days. We see in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Peter using a similar term, last time. 1 Peter 1.20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And then here in 1 John 2, verse 18, it's described as the last hour. Eschatology, study of last things. As I've already said, this has become one of the most divisive of the ologies. Theology is, is the study of... God. Systematic theology 
is the study of everything the Bible says about one subject. In the study of the different theologies, what the Bible says about a particular subject, eschatology has become one of the most divisive, if not the most divisive. There are so many people who want to predict when this last hour could be. But John is writing in the early church calling that the last hour. And now we're here several years removed, and it's still the last hour. There's two important things that we need to understand about this. God makes it clear that no one knows the exact day and hour in which Christ will return. Matthew 24, 36 tells this very clearly to us. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven, but the Father only when the end will finally come. No one knows. This also gives us some insight into how God experiences time. God can call an indefinite amount of time an hour because to him a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He doesn't experience time like we experience time. Our God is so big that he's not under the restraints of time in the same way that we are. But God has given us clues to tell us when the time of his second coming is getting close. He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Even though no one knows the exact time in which Christ will return or the Antichrist will manifest himself, what causes us to know that it is the last hour is that antichrists, plural, have come. They have shown themselves. But the question is, who or what is antichrist? Is he talking about two different types of antichrist? Is there one that has come now and one that will come later? What does this mean? Let me say to you that antichrist is one who comes instead of Christ, or one who is against Christ. One who comes attempting to be in the place of Christ instead of Christ, or one who opposes Christ. This particular word, though, for Antichrist that's used here, this particular form, is actually only found in John's epistles. Here in chapter 2, verse 18, verse 22 of chapter 2, 1 John 4, 3, and then 2 John, verse 7. But Revelation 19, 20 speaks of a singular Antichrist. But until this one comes, this tells us that there will be many Antichrists. There are those who will come in the spirit of Antichrist that attempt to take the place of Christ as they resist Christ, as they're against him. Uh, I jokingly said this earlier in our class. Uh, I'm about to say something that's, that's fairly controversial, especially in this day and age and cancel culture. So uh, I would tell you to turn your phones off if you're a real conspiracy theorist, but we're putting this on the Internet, so oh well, here it goes. In Revelation 13, there are two types of Antichrist, those that oppose Christ that are listed there. Do you know what they are? governments, and false prophets. Do you know the main mission of the false prophet in Revelation 13? 
It is to get you to worship the government. That sound familiar to you all? Those who are in the spirit of Antichrist want to take you away from worshiping Christ and take you to worship something else. Hear what I didn't say. I didn't say that should mean that you care about being a Republican or a Democrat or that one is more evil than the other. What I'm saying to you is that all governments in Antichrist's plan are diametrically opposed to Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the fact that governments do not operate outside of the power of God. Those who are in power over us are there because God wills it to be. But to put our trust in them is to accept them as Antichrist, as your Christ. Also, I'm not saying that if you work for the government, you should quit tomorrow. Amen? But what I am saying is that who you trust in will show what your Christ is. We heard an excellent quote yesterday. It was talking more about difficult situations that you face, but I think it's apropos here. Joni Erickson Tata once said, God, lo- God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And I think that's very appropriate in this circumstance. That God wants to be our king. He wants to rule us for all eternity. But for the interim, he will allow us to be ruled by something other than him. We're thankful for those who do have the best in mind when they serve in government. But to trust in the government is to trust something other than Christ. And John says in this particular day that these antichrists have already arisen. That means that there were types of antichrists already in John's day, and those antichrists have continued until this day. There are so many other mentions of a type of antichrist all throughout the scriptures, both old and new. Passages like Matthew 7, 15, Mark 13, 21, Luke 17, 23, Ephesians 5, 11, 1 Thessalonians 2, the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 8, and 23 through 26, or Daniel 11, 36. These all mention types of Antichrist or the Antichrist that is to come. But here's the point. The point is not to have you make a bunch of graphs about the end of time or try to forecast who the Antichrist is. The point is to issue you a warning. The warning is to us first as Christians that we, if you can't sense it already, let me say it to you very clearly, we are on the precipice of great trouble in the church that we are on the edge of persecution, and to some degree, some of us are already experiencing a type of persecution. Christians have known this. We've known this all along. Even in the early church in Acts 14, verses 19 through 22, There's persecution that's happened there that happens under the persuasion of crowds. A group think comes to attack Paul. They drag him out of the city and they stone him. Which doesn't deter Paul. 
In Acts 14, 21, it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they turned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And here's what they say. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, but saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. One of the conclusions that we came to in our inductive study today is that we in the United States, in the church of the West, have experienced ease of life at such a high level that the idea of suffering for Jesus Christ is foreign to us. And we must, and I must, it is my job as one of your shepherds to prepare you for the persecution that may come. That as the time grows nearer and the time of Christ gets closer, the persecution will only get worse. But to you, my friend who does not know Jesus Christ, you must know that time is short. We do not know the exact moment of the return of Jesus Christ. It could be tomorrow. And if you are planning on repenting and turning to Christ tomorrow or the next day or the next day and presuming upon the grace of Jesus Christ, that day may never come. And so let this be a warning to us in the church that persecution may come in our lifetimes, but let it be a greater warning to those who may not know Jesus Christ as their Savior that today, behold, today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to turn to Jesus Christ. And at the same time that he issues this warning, what John issues to the church is a message of incredible hope. We've said this for the last two weeks, that the darkness is perishing. As an antichrist raises and comes forward, the last hour indicates the reign of the end of antichrist and, this, and the reign of sin is coming to an end. That the world and its ways, sin and the devil, will not be allowed to continue forever. Time will run out on the devil and his plans. And God has already predetermined what that time will be. And you and I must patiently endure until that time comes. Remember, he is the darkness and the devil is perishing. He knows this, and he's trying with all his might to hang on to whatever he can. And so here's the application of this particular passage today, brothers and sisters. Do not lose hope. Do not use hope. Lose hope. What I have noticed about myself, and maybe this is true for you too, but the older I get, the worse things seem to become, don't they? I've caught myself more recently saying things like, when I was a kid... This never happened. But friends, the message of the gospel is that this, is, this life on earth is the worst that it's ever going to be for us. That when we see Christ in his glory and when we get to heaven, we'll experience the majesty of God in such a way that is almost incomprehensible to us now. The message of the gospel is the message of perseverance, I'm going to attempt to speak to, to several different groups today. 
in an effort to encourage you in this process. Can I just say, I want to speak to you in particular, young people, kids that are in here with us, our teenagers, our young adults that are here. Us older people in this conversation, we need you. We need your almost reckless optimism to think that it's possible to bring about change that us as older Christians have given up on. We need you to continue to believe that that you, by the power of God, can change the world around you. We need your optimistic outlook on the world inside of the power of God. We need you to use your energy to fight and to encourage us to keep going. If we think about it in the sense of a running analogy, the finish line is in sight, brothers and sisters. We can't give up. We can't give up so close to the finish line. Let us finish strong. Let us run these last hours strong. But according to this text, to finish strong, there are two things that we must do. There are two things that this text calls us to do. The one, here's what it says, the one who abides with Christ will abide in doing his will and will abide with his people. Look with me at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us, because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. This idea of them going out from us is not just the idea that they left the fellowship of the church, but they've also left the pure doctrine of the church. You see, what happens oftentimes is when people break fellowship with other believers, they've started to leave the truth of the Scriptures long before they leave the fellowship of other Christians. He makes it very clear here that they went out from us. What had happened in this particular circumstance is not that they were excommunicated, but they left of their own accord. They had so forsaken the doctrine of God that they thought it was also acceptable to forsake the people of God. And let me just say to you, when people leave the church, it can be very discouraging. And let me say this before I go down this particular path. Just because someone doesn't become a covenant member here at Crossbridge doesn't mean that they're living in sin. There are lots of good churches here on Long Island. There's way better pastors than me. There's lots of places where someone could get involved in a church and fellowship and covenant together with other believers. So I'm not talking about that person. What I'm talking about is the person who leaves the church and then forsakes the things of God. When that happens, it can be very discouraging. When they reject a clear teaching from the Bible and they leave the church and they leave the fellowship of the saints, it's heartbreaking. But God has a divine purpose in that. And that's what he says here in verse 19. His purpose is that it might become plain that they were not of us. That their leaving and forsaking the things of God is a revelation of the fact that they were never in Christ in the first place. Because what he is saying here is that those who are true believers will remain and continue in doing the will of God and remain and continue with the people of God. Just like verse 6 told us that they abide in God, 
Here John says not only will they abide in God, but they will abide with the people of God. For us, the direct application here is that we must build our lives on doing God's will and abiding with God's people. Build our life on doing what God has told us to in his word and abiding with his church. During COVID, we were told that being with God's people was just something that you could do online, that it wasn't essential. And many people have believed this lie. But the truth is, the church in the West had already become something people do and not who they are. You see, that's the drastic difference. If the church is who we are and not something we do, then our lives will look different when it comes to structuring our lives in such a way that gathering with other believers who are in covenant relationship will be a priority in our lives. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that there wasn't a certain portion of time in which we needed to be obedient to our government officials. Again, not trusting in them, but respecting those who are in authority of us. But at the same time, we must be very careful to recognize that the the gathering of the church is one of the most essential things in the life of the believer. It's part of the reason that John's writing this letter, that you might have fellowship with God and fellowship with us. And again, let me make a plea to uh, different groups of people. Husbands, making, being with other Christians, and even fellowshipping around the Word in your own home has been tasked to us. It is our job as the leader of our homes to make sure that we're structuring the lives of those in our homes in such a way that they see the priority of doing the will of God and doing of being together and abiding with the people of God. And make no mistakes, men. Our wives, our children, our our family, they know what we prioritize by how we spend our time and we spend our money. They know what we're about. We tell them everything that we're about in the way that we structure our lives. Let me say the same thing to you, parents. Our children know what we're about by what we prioritize. And let me just say this as a side note to you, children. God has given you the parents that he's entrusted, to, he's entrusted you to their care. Please, when they encourage you to come to church and be part of the gathering, do not fight them in this. God has trusted your parents with your care as your steward. And they are encouraging you to do something that is profitable and good. Let me just say this to you. One of the things that I see so troubling in the culture today is that those who are aging and who are older grandparents, older saints, the culture has said that your time has come and gone and you're not needed any longer. And let that never be said of the church of Jesus Christ. The younger generation needs to see faithful saints consistently walking with Christ. The world says that you lose your value as you age, but to Christ and his church, you increase in value as you age age and as a crucial part of the church of Jesus Christ. 
We need the youth for their energy, but we need older saints for their wisdom and patience. Single person, young person, the the world wants you to believe that being part of a church is old and boring, but let me say to you, it isn't. Being with other believers under the teaching of the Word of God is how you will grow into maturity in Christ and live the best possible life to God's glory and your good. And let me just say to you, this, this past two weeks, this is in some sense meant as a rebuke, but at the same time, there are many of you that should be incredibly encouraged in the fact that you are not just pretending to be the church or the church is something that you uh, do, but it's who you are. And we have seen this manifested over the last two weeks in the way that you have served Susan Pacirillo and her family. In, in that process of her son going into the hospital, you guys rose to the occasion to not just do church, but be the church. And our interaction with her and her family might be the means by which her family comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as your pastor, I have been so encouraged and almost overflowing with pride in terms of what you've done to serve them already, but the fact that it appears that the, work, the, the Spirit of Jesus Christ is, in work, is working in you. I can't even get my words out. I'm so blown away by what you guys have done in serving them. So let it be a rebuke, but at the same time, let it be an encouragement that that you have served inside of our our church well. But how then should we respond to this, this call to do the will of God in community and abiding with those who are in Jesus Christ? Here's here's the final point, and we'll close. We must stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of God's word. He ends this particular passage with this hopefully um, encouraging but daunting warning that antichrists are here and they came from inside the church, but there's something that's different about those who continue on in doing the will of God and abiding with those who are in God. And here's the difference but you have been anointed by the Holy One. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have also been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And we'll continue forward because the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. There's a beautiful analogy between this anointing of the Holy Spirit here and and what happens in the Old Testament. In in Exodus chapter 29, verses 1 through 19, we see here a consecration of the priest for service. So I I want you to, to get this in your brain when you think about yourself in terms of how the Holy Spirit has anointed you to do the work that God has called you to do while you abide with and in fellowship with the people of God. This is what it says, Exodus 29, 1 through 9. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemished and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his son to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. 
Then you shall take the garments and put on the coat, the air and the coat and, and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastplate and gird him with skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons in the Old Testament are set apart as the priests that serve and intercede on behalf of the believer, the Israelites in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, in his death, burial, and specifically his resurrection, is the great high priest of everyone who is in Jesus Christ, and then has anointed us with the power of the Holy Spirit to be his little P-priests here on earth, to serve the, the body of Christ in fellowship by doing the will of God. That means you, brother and sister, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit to persevere in doing the will of God with the people of God. And so when the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, the message of the devil creeps into your mind, recognize that you've been marked out by connection with Christ through the Holy Spirit, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit to set us apart for salvation and for service. This particular passage goes on to tell us that this anointing of, this whole, of the Holy Spirit is part and parcel for how we know and understand the Word of God. The way that you get all knowledge is by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit through the knowledge of God to know the difference between truth and lies. And those who don't know the difference between truth and lie are not indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and they left in John's text. But those who know God and are anointed by the Holy Spirit will remain and they understand the provisions of the Holy Spirit given to them under the new covenant. Now, what does this look like in a world full of lies? What does it look like to know the truth in a world where it's hard to tell what the truth is because everyone is lying so much you don't know who's lying and who's not? Does that feel about right to you guys? Did anybody else feel that way? Just me. Just amen, yes, something. Let me know I'm not the only crazy conspiracy theorist up here, okay? I can't tell who's lying and who's not anymore. Unless through the power of the Holy Spirit, I see the truth of the Word of God, and I let that be the filter of truth versus lies. So here's what I think this means. We as Christians have to have zero tolerance for lies in ourselves. Zero. None. But how does that work in a world that's filled with liars and lies? As we have zero tolerance for lies in ourselves, at the same time, we love those who are caught in the lies that we were once caught in. Here's why I'm making this distinction. In the world today, there's this message that you have to get every toxic person out of your life. Have you heard this? 
You can't have interaction with anyone who's toxic. And I will say that there is a time in which you may have to set boundaries and distance yourself from someone who is repeatedly sinning against you and isn't repenting. Okay? But if every one of us get every toxic person out of our life, who are we going to interact with? And can I say this too? You know who the most toxic person is in most people's lives? It's you. No one does more damage to your life than you. And yet, the example of Jesus Christ is that while we were still sinners, while we were still toxic people, he loved us and gave himself for us. And so we have zero tolerance for lies in ourselves because no lie is of the truth, while at the same time, those who are stuck in the lies that we were once stuck in, we love them. So what does this look like to stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of God's Word? How do we actually tolerate no lies in ourselves while loving those who are living a lie? We must, brothers and sisters, we must speak the truth in a world full of lies. We must. God has anointed each one of us to be the messengers of his word in the context in which he has put us in. He's anointed you for this. And he has anointed you not just to set you apart for salvation, but also to service that you would abide in doing God's word by speaking the truth and abide with God's people in love as an outworking of the Holy Spirit working in you. That you would have no fear to speak the truth of God's word, but you would do it in a loving way into a world full of lies. Let me say this again to you. Make no space in your heart and mind for lies. Do not tolerate them in yourself. And at the same time, love God and love others enough to speak the truth to them in a loving way. Because you understand the gospel to an unbeliever is inherently confrontational. The fact that you are a sinner who can't save themselves and that you're condemned to hell, that doesn't initially sound like a good, the good news of the gospel. But when you have the full story of the blood of Jesus Christ paying for your sins, atoning for your sins, that Jesus Christ, as we've already learned, is both the advocate and the propitiator of our sins, then the message is of inf- infinite goodness but to first be confronted with the reality of sin and the reality of death is not going to be a message that's easily received. But this should be a natural speaking the truth, should be a natural outpouring of the fact that we have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our old self has put off, as Ephesians 4 talks about, and the new self has been put on. And as soon as Paul finishes talking about this transition that happens to the believer, do you know what the next thing is he says in Ephesians 4.25? Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. But let me say to you, 
This idea of speaking the truth in love, if we're ever going to do it out there, it has to start in here. And you and I have to work together to create a culture in the church where speaking the truth in love in a place that is so safe because of the love of Jesus Christ that we give to each other then becomes a natural outworking as we become the church scattered and leave this place. But for the church gathered, it should be normal for us to call out lies in each other's life by speaking the truth and then lovingly help us each other change. That should be normal in the church. Because the passage that says, none is righteous, no, not one, doesn't just apply to people out there. It applies to us in here. We have to recognize that every one of us is a sinner in need of the grace of God. And in that recognition, create a culture of truth and love that calls out sin that helps each other grow in grace and truth. And here's the ultimate truth. I've said it once already, but let me say it again. Everyone, everyone is a sinner both by nature and by deed. And everyone that is a sinner which is everyone, is condemned to die both physically and spiritually. When you die physically, you will face a spiritual death that can only be avoided by one thing. And the the way that you avoid the spiritual death, which is separation from God in hell forever, is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The way that you receive The blood of Jesus Christ is by confessing to God that you are a sinner and that Jesus Christ is the only way to avoid spiritual death and to experience spiritual life. This is the ultimate truth. This is the truth that we're anointed to both declare and to live. So, brothers and sisters, let's pray and ask God through the power of His Holy Spirit to help us both serve and work out our salvation until his return. But friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ, this is your moment. This is the time in which you can cry out to God in prayer, and he will hear you if you pray from a genuine heart. And if you ask him to save you, the word promises, his word promises that he will save you. So will you, will you pray with me now? Lord, Through our human eyes, when we look at the world, it looks like everything is chaotic, filled with hate, headed down a very destructive path. And in many ways it is. And yet at the same time, your perfect plan is being fulfilled. We know from your word that you're working all things together for good for those who are called according to your purpose. And because you are a good God who's proven yourself to be a good God over and over again, we trust you. We trust your plan for us individually. We trust your plan for your church here at Crossbridge. We trust your plan for this country that we live in. We trust your plan for the countries, the other countries that many of us have come from. We trust your plan for this entire world. And we're thankful that you've told us in your word how all of this ends. And Lord, we're asking now that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would allow us to be light in a dark world. 
that as the darkness is perishing, that the light would shine through us in greater and greater measure. Lord, help us to be aware that there are always those who are deceiving us to worship something other than you. Help us to fight against believing those lies by the power of your word. Lord, join us together in unity as your church that we would love you and love each other enough to to do life together and to have a, a culture where confession and repentance inside of the church is normal. Lord, we are so ready for you to return. We're ready for you to come back at any moment. Oh, to see you face to face. But until that day comes, Lord, help us to remind us, help us to be reminded that your Holy Spirit has empowered us and anointed us to do your will until that time. Strengthen us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.